having the voters check in on the government and throw the rascals out if they really hate them um, seems to have pretty high benefits. Uh, but having voters micromanage the details of government and having really short terms uh, seems to have pretty high costs. Welcome back to The Empire's New Clothes, the show where we discuss the forces that make and break empires. I'm your host, Brad MacArthur. Today we're speaking to author and economist Garrett Jones. He's written a few books on how a higher national IQ increases national income, and also, wait for it, 10% less democracy is what America needs. It's not exactly the title of his book, but it's part of his argument there. So before you cancel him, Listen to the whole discussion. It's very interesting. I hope you enjoy. Garrett, thanks so much for joining today. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, looking forward to it. So you've got uh, quite the background in economics. And, you know, when I when I start these things, I'm always so fascinated. What brought you, Garrett Jones, why the interest in economics? Well, basically, I tried out all the other social sciences, and this is the only one that stuck. <laughs> Um, okay. <laughs> I mean, I started off as a history major. I minored in sociology, and I was interested in these questions of why societies turn out the way they do. And what I learned in both my history and my social classes what, was that the tools I appreciated most were the economics tools. Um, it's not that mm. economists had the answers, but they had tools that could help me identify causation um, when other social sciences were just dealing with correlations. And um, I think that sort of the robustness of economic explanations is, is really what drew me in. Like I might not get all the answers, but at least mm -hmm. some answers that I'll get will be robust. Do you remember some of your early interests? Are they still the ones you work on today or are there some stuff that, you, that drew you in those first initial questions? Well, I mean, really it was just this question of cause and effect. I, I wasn't really a, a big uh, wealth of nations person. I wasn't really interested mm -hmm. in, in deep way in grand economic questions of institutions. Um, I guess I started off with more with questions we might think of as more mesoeconomics or grand microeconomics. Um, hmm. The first I'd say the first thing that really hooked me into the power of economics was actually um, new, the new institutional economics, which was this sort of way of thinking about why um, why firms exist, um, how difficult it is to bring people together to cooperate and how some institutions, some uh, cultural norms might actually be functional ways to bring people together. Um, and it, it turns out my colleague at George Mason here, John Nye, is one of the leading figures in the new institutional economics. So like now I've got oh. him down the hall. I used to just read his stuff on the internet. So <laughs> That's awesome. So you know, it's interesting talking about humans cooperating, these elements. We're certainly feeling, all of us, this perhaps lack of cooperation in many regards. Mm -hmm. but, then you, but then you look at, say, say, the U.S. There's periods where we have had incredible cooperation as a nation. Mm -hmm. And um, I, think, I think these are probably going to be through lines of this conversation for sure, this idea of cooperation. But let's let's dive into your book Hive Mind a bit, um, and you know I, I want to get kind of the core thesis. But before we do, I feel like we we got to explain a few concepts here. Like, what's at the core element? What is an IQ? Let's start with that. Oh, so um, basically, um, IQ tests are, as people say, just a test. But it turns out that it's that uh, the IQ tests that have been had the tires kicked on them most 
actually have really pretty good ability to predict a variety of real world outcomes, um, like whether your boss thinks you're doing a good job or how patient you are or, um, you know, how quickly you can, uh, how much trivia, you know. So it can be a variety of some things from the mundane to the quite practical. And so we don't expect perfection in the social sciences. So this isn't, you know, Newtonian physics. So if we can get something, a simple test that you can take in about an hour that can tell me about half, that can do half the job of telling me how much your boss is going to like you a couple years from now, that's a pretty handy test to have. And so that's part of the reason why um, I was drawn to uh, intelligence research is that uh, it was something where a lot of people who really wanted to knock down this idea that IQ tests work kept being sold on it. So I like the, that one of the great ideas of good social science is this, this adversarial approach to truth, something that works a lot like our jury system, our legal system, where you've got different sides trying to push hard and beat up each other's ideas. And IQ tests have been put through the ringer. And um, it's I can say they're not perfect, but GDP per capita isn't perfect either. But, you know, more is usually better than less when it comes to IQ or income per person. Yeah, interesting. And then, so you took that in a pretty um, fascinating direction with your book. Maybe you walk us through that a little bit. Well, yes. So um, I started off with uh, my uh, a colleague, uh, Joel Schneider, who's a psychologist. And he and I worked together to see if these cross-country IQ measures, which are imperfect, but again, so are most economic measures, um, whether they were really robust predictors of a nation's economic performance. And if you didn't want to use IQ tests, you could use uh, the national math, science, and reading tests that are put out by groups like PISA. And uh, you'd get about basically the same answer, which is that test scores, whatever kind of test score you're using, standardized test scores are really robust predictors of how an economy is doing now and how it's likely to do over the next few decades. Um, so it predicts both the, a way to put it more formally is it predicts both the level and the growth rate of your economy in different ways. And so this result was so robust, it got me wondering what the micro foundations were, what was really driving this. And yeah. once I looked at labor economics, you know, the first thing I do is I'd look at what the results of labor economics, because labor economists in the U.S. and other countries have they've had IQ tests around for a long time and they've checked to see using, you know, standard um Labor, labor income data sets. Do people, does the, basically, does your boss pay for higher IQ? Do higher IQ workers earn more? And the answer is they work, they earn a little bit more. Maybe you would say moderately more. But the relationship was not big enough to explain what we were finding across countries. And so it looked to me like um, intelligence, however you measure it, um, cognitive skills, were a, seemed to have a bigger effect for nations than for individuals. And when economists see that something has a bigger payoff for a group than for an individual, the first thing we think is externalities, spillover effects. Is there something about being around smart people that has a big payoff that's bigger than you being smart yourself? And often that's how I sum up Hive Mind, the, my first book with Stanford, which is that it's more important to be around smart people than to be smart yourself. And when people hear that, they're often very, they get the idea instantly, right? Um, and, you know, a lot of people who really love IQ tests and who think that IQ is really important and intelligence scores are great, they don't like this idea. They want to hear that IQ is great for you and it's great for your country. But if it's great for you um, and we already know what the payoff is to the country, there's really not much left for there to be spillovers. There's no side effects, right? So I tend to think that, you know, um, IQ tests are a lot like, you know, 
basically COVID vaccinations where there's some payoff to you and there's a really big payoff to the neighbors. So really my neighbors should be paying me to get vaccinated, right? My neighbors <laughs> should be trying, you know, I should be trying to get really smart economists in my economics department to make me better, right? So having smart people around you has a big payoff for you. And I worked, I spent the next few years of my career trying to figure out what precisely these payoffs were. What, why precisely it was um, likely that um, intelligence mattered more for nations than for individuals? Why was it basically the equivalent, you know, the equivalent of getting a vaccination against COVID, where it helps people around you quite a bit, and where we should all have an interest in the vaccination status, the intelligence, the cognitive skills of those around us? So you're finding that a nation that has a higher average IQ has higher income or like are what's what's kind of like some mathematical findings there yes yeah, so uh, a big one is that uh, countries with higher test scores higher average test scores tend to have higher savings rates um, higher rates of investment and um, there's a wide literature in behavioral economics and in psychology showing that uh, people who do better on IQ tests tend to be more patient they just think about the future they give more thought for the morrow and um, as a result, that those higher savings rates end up bringing more capital, more investment, uh, more education into those countries. So, you know, uh, you know capital is kind of sticky within a country. So just having a lot of smart people in your country means that they'll have more, they'll save more and there'll be more funds in the bank to invest. And you wind up with more, a bigger capital stock and you have more entrepreneurs who can pull together, who can pull together somebody else's billion dollars to start up a new company. That's one channel. Another channel I place a lot of weight on is um, uh, drawing on the work of my colleague, Brian Kaplan at George Mason, who showed that um, whether we use IQ tests or education measures, it looks like people who um, have higher cognitive skills are, are more likely to support markets. Uh, basically, smarter people are more likely to see the invisible hand. And, um, you know, Great ideas in economics are often kind of unintuitive, and it takes a little work to get to these results. Why? Why exactly is free trade a good idea? Why exactly is a good is it a good idea to let my boss fire me? Um, you know, common sense often says I should make stuff here so that there are a lot of jobs for people here. Common sense often says um, I shouldn't let my boss fire me because he might be a jerk and fire me for a bad reason. Uh, but it turns out economists are big fans of legalizing divorce, big fans of legalizing firing, and big fans of letting foreigners make all our stuff for us. Um, so these are you know, hyperboles, but I'm trying to sum it up to, to explain how unintuitive a lot of these important ideas in economics are. Um, so whether we think of the institutional channels, the sort of Brian Kaplan channels, where uh, smarter individuals are more likely to support something like laissez-faire capitalism and to social tolerance, or on the other hand, whether it's something more mechanical and, e and traditional economic story, like uh, smarter people are more likely to be patient and help big, build up a bigger capital stock. There seem to be multiple channels, multiple reasons why um, having smart people around you is going to be good for you. Mm -hmm. And what about the, the concept of the chicken or the egg, which came first? Because I'm also thinking like as countries get richer, they invest more in education and health, which perhaps boosts IQs. And so did you, is that a part of the book or your research at all as well? It definitely is. Um, so I refer to that as what I call a Flynn cycle. So it's actually Jim Flynn, uh, the, the great um, philosopher actually, 
who discovered the long-term rise in IQ scores. He was kind enough to blurb my book. Um, and what he found was that he, he's the person who documented that there's been this long-term increase in intelligence scores across time, not just on the, the little trivia parts of an IQ test, but actually the abstract thinking parts, the things that to a lot of people would seem the most IQ-ish. Um, there's been rising, and it's been a puzzle as to why. Um, one possible explanation, one I place some weight on, is that basically the, the same forces making us healthier and taller, um, basically nutrition and good public health, are basically making us smarter as well. I mean, the brain is part of the body, and so um, it's, it would be unsurprising if the forces that create more health actually make our brains work better. But notice what I just said, make your brains work better. So I think that there's forward causation and reverse causation. To me, it's just kind of obvious. Um, hmm. When we run these IQ tests and we find out that um, people who do well on an IQ test at 18 are more likely to you know, have good employment relationships 5, 10, 20 years later, um, it seems pretty obvious that people who know more stuff, can solve more puzzles, um, have more social intelligence at the age of 18 are likely to have better outcomes 10, 20 years later. So there's some forward causation. So when people ask me about this, is it all reverse causation question? I ask them, you know, well, when I see that great weightlifters have more muscles, maybe that's all just reverse causation. Maybe the ability to lift a lot of weight just gives you more muscle, right? <laughs> it could be, how would I know, right? I mean, the answer is, you, you know, because you, you're, it's pretty obvious that the muscle actually helps you lift weights, right? The muscles, I mean, I'm sure there's some reverse causation there, but the muscles help you lift weights. The ability to solve puzzles, the ability to remember facts, the ability to read the minds of others, all of which are associated with intelligence, are obviously tools that can help you do better in the real world. So when you look at what IQ tests predict, they predict skills that are obviously helping us to do better in our lives. That's why I believe that there's an important source of forward causation, even though there's also reverse mm -hmm. causation. Yeah, that's so interesting. And, you know, I didn't know about the Flynn effect. And that, mm -hmm. that makes me wonder, because I have no idea here, but that makes me think about um, ancient Athens and how their culture was very interested in abstract thought. Mm -hmm. And these reasoning mechanisms that that sounds like you're saying would test quite high in an IQ score today. The this type of thinking, where you're grappling with these like ethereal ideas and you're bringing together different philosophies, as opposed to that that stone is bigger than that stone, like like different forms of cognition. Mm -hmm. And so, is there any studies or work done that that you've seen or you do yourself on? the changes in culture and how a culture can slowly adapt and find different things that are, it just prefers like these types of thought patterns and how that would boost IQ. This is something that I just think is a great question. And it's so hard to test that you have to say that all the work yeah. on it is kind of loosey goosey and people just sort of saying, well, maybe this, maybe that. Um, but you're right. I, uh, so Flynn, let me tell you what, so, so Flynn's work is excellent and people should read all of it. Um, he has a great TED talk that uh, uh, has been seen millions of times. And unlike many TED talks, it's one that's robust and has survived the reproducibility. <laughs> Shots fired. Yeah. So, um, and so, so Flynn, uh, 
let me tell you Flynn's story about the Flynn effect. Flynn's theory of the Flynn effect is very much like yours. It's that, uh, or at least has some overlap. He thinks that basically the modern world has become more like an IQ test than it used to be. He basically thinks our grandparents and great grandparents were just as smart as us, but at different stuff. So that recording concrete facts and simple facts um, where it was plate had higher value back then and that the power of abstraction and sometimes outwardly impractical abstraction is something that our IQ tests were, were designed to pick up in the early 20th century. And there's something that our culture has come to value even more with the with the subsequent hmm. decades. So Flynn's theory of the Flynn effect is mostly cultural. Um, you know, he doesn't deny the possibility of nutrition mattering uh, a lot, but uh, he thinks that this cultural element of intelligence can't be can't be denied. Um, and so I've always hoped that my fellow economists would take on this big question of trying to resolve the Flynn effect in a really robust, concrete way. Our data sets are getting just long enough that there should be some ability to tease out hmm. um, tease out these sorts of things. Um, it, but it is the kind of thing where it's it's a little bit like these early uh, these genetic studies that have gone on genomeconomics, where you know a sample size of a thousand just isn't enough. So you probably need ten thousand, a hundred thousand, maybe a million um, to figure out with when you're talking about small drifts over decades in one kind of cognition versus another. It's going to be a, it's going to take a lot of data to um, separate the signal from the noise. So, hmm. but I when I, I I think informally and perhaps quantitatively, we we could be able to look back at the documents of ancient times and just see basically are there different kinds of abstraction they're using in ancient Greece versus Rome. I mean, anybody who studies ancient Greece versus ancient Rome will tell you the Greeks were really philosophical and the Romans were really practical. Right. Yeah. And it seemed like the Romans, the Romans had all of the math books of the Greeks and they used them at times, but they rarely went to the heights of abstraction and extension that, say, Newton went through, um, you know, a millennium later, millennium plus later. So uh, what drove that? Is it really the case that childhood culture, um, the culture that kids get were getting raised in in ancient Rome just was so focused on pragma pragmatic problem solving that they got stuck in a rut that lasted their whole lives and this got carried mm -hmm. on for generations. I mean, I'm open, I'm totally open to that. Um, and yeah. I think Jim Flynn would be too, that, uh, you know, we can call it, uh, we can, we can say the plastic, we can use the jargony saying that, um, mental plasticity fades with age, or we can just say you get stuck in a rut that you're raised in. Right. And, I would love to see that tested rigorously and I would like mm -hmm. love it seen compared to, to other, other hypotheses as well. So, but the question of whether cognition, how it, how and why it differs by cultures is a great question. They're like they're the kind of things that are seem like small tweaks at the app at the, when you're look, when you're just discuss, discussing it, but it might have world changing implications. Yeah. Well, that definitely makes me think about, I guess the intelligence of a culture, if, if there's like, is there a way to test the intelligence of a culture? And I guess I'm kind of thinking of like, have we done something like two people with the same IQ, same culture solving problems, and then two people, same IQ, different culture solving problem. And if you could like can control for say cooperation or something, because to your point, 
getting stuck in a rut can be seen as negative, but also could be positive in that you just niche down. And so maybe one culture niches down into like very, very good at practical and then say the Athens very, very good at abstract. And so if you pair someone of equal IQ from both cultures together, it'd be like more powerful than two of either culture individually. Do we test for stuff like that or is there is there research in, in these areas? Um. It's no. I mean, I, the right the, the simple answer is no. Um, we're just getting to the point where in labs people are uh, looking at this question at the questions of how intelligence matters for groups rather than individuals. So I wrote a, a paper very early on, when, but before I was before I could even have called myself uh, an experimental economist in any way, where I found uh-huh. that when people ran these cooperation games, the repeated prisoner's dilemma, as it's known. Uh, when people ran these at schools with higher SA, higher average SAT scores, people tended to cooperate more than when they ran the same kinds of tests at lower SAT score schools. So basically, when you run cooperation games at the smart schools, the kids cooperate about uh, 30% more So than when they're playing the same kind of game at uh, lower scoring schools. That's in, in percentage terms, not percentage points. And, I guess um, that's why I don't cooperate well. So, um, but... So that I basically wrote that to kind of kick up, kick off of, you know, uh, to inspire others to do more rigorous experimental work on this. And uh, ultimately, like a paper just got published uh, last year in the Journal of Political Economy, a top top journal in our field, that actually did something like this at a much more micro level, where they had uh, they give the students a bunch of IQ tests and they said tomorrow you're going to play a game, and then the folks who did well on the test were paired with other people who did well. Folks who did not so well on the test were paired with people who did not so well. And it turns out that the higher IQ pairs of players really were a lot more cooperative in most settings. So, hmm. and, um, and and the key here is that the game is repeated. As The more repeated the game is, the more feel the more people feel like, I'm gonna see this person again tomorrow. I'm gonna see, I'm gonna play this game a bunch of rounds. Um, the more likely, the more you see this trait where uh, people who do better on IQ tests are more likely to think win-win. They're more likely to try to go along to get along. And um, so that one came out last year. And then this year, a paper's coming out in, by the same team of, team of scholars showing that when you pair the higher IQ player with a lower IQ player, the, t- the person who scores well doesn't come down. The person who does not so well starts coming up. It takes a couple of rounds, but eventually this person starts drifting hmm. up. So basically by being paired with people who do not so well, um, the, the higher IQ person ends up teaching. And this is just in a lab where it's basically people touching buttons on a computer. This isn't like people talking and building relationships. Even in this very abstract setting, the example of someone who um, cooperates conditionally, who plays nice when somebody's playing nice and who plays mean when somebody plays mean, that by itself can help create a culture of cooperation. So I don't want to use the word cooperation like in a sort of Pollyanna-ish, like let's all just be nice to each other way. Um, from Axelrod onward, the person who kicked off this literature on the great experimental literature on cooperation in Prisoner's Dilemmas, it's always the re- a recurring theme is that um, the person has to be willing to play tit for tat. If you're nice to me, I'm nice to you. If you're mean to me, I'm mean to you. And so it's that sort of the velvet glove sort of element to social cooperation that seems to be important. You need to be around people who will start nice, but 
If you um, try to stick a shiv in their back, they'll just they'll they won't forget. <laughs> well, let's let's turn this a little um, practical into our everyday and talk about what That's are some mechanics. Section, by the way, I want to point that out. The shiv. Say, say that again. That shiv reference is a reference to the uh, TV series Succession, by the way. So. Oh well, that's over my head. I haven't. I've heard of it, but I haven't watched that. Yeah, so. I know. Like the old thing, but Hopefully, many viewers are are they got the reference. I'm sure. Um, so, turning it to the U.S. and our everyday here, what what are some practical ways that we could say boost the average IQ? And I'm I'm thinking there's a lot of policy measures that could be expensive and slow. And I'm really thinking about immigration. Mm-hmm. What are Maybe walk me through the different, um, you know, avenues here, but I, but I'd love to focus on immigration because it seems like the quickest way, or maybe not because of like a, a percentage and flows per, uh, basis. Yeah, this, um, the question of whether Canadian style or Singapore style immigration policy would be a great, a, a great way to raise test scores in the U.S. seems, seems like an important one. So, um, you know, Canada, um, Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, um, to some extent, the UK, um, they've focused on, you know, immigration policies that bring in people who are highly skilled. And if you just just say if you just have a policy that favors people with STEM degrees and people with highly technical skills, people who are master plumbers, uh, doesn't have people with fancy degrees, uh, just people with good skills, good practical skills. Um, that will de facto be a policy that brings in folks with higher average test scores. I think that would, uh, it seems like that would yield a lot of benefits and generally leads to less less social blowback. I've been very concerned about the, the sort of racist or ethnic backlashes that come um, with immigration. And they seem to be a lot more common with uh, lower skilled immigration, unfortunately. So if I want to bring as uh, many people as possible into the U.S. to help uh, to help us be better, and do more things and to help the migrants live a better life. One way to do it is to pick a policy that's less likely to generate a uh, racist or ethnic backlash and high school immigration seems to be a way to do that. Um, but I also, I agree, uh, it's very likely to on average raise test scores uh, over the medium term. You're right, there's a stock and flow problem. Uh, if you're bringing in, if you brought in 2 million new people a year who all had uh, fancy degrees, that's still less than 1% of the population, right? So. Um, but I mean, at the same time, it's still, it's still a question that deserves attention. How much good public health, uh, good, good public health ma- measures, how much particularly good neonatal measures, good neonatal health policy and good, say K through three education can matter a lot. Uh, Jim Heckman, the Nobel laureate is a big fan of basically early interventions mattering more. Um, it's been a controversial topic of research because for both good and bad reasons, we don't run big experiments on young people, right? Um, uh, we lose some knowledge that way, but, you know, people, parents should be able to raise their kids how they want to. Um, but uh, it does seem as though there's got to be room for whatever the Flynn effect is. It seems like there ought to be a way to get more of it. And um, some of the ways we would... and. If we can find a way to get more Flynn effect, it's a comp- it looks like it's a compounding effect that shows up over time. You know, his old his old result was uh, that IQ points were IQ was increasing about two points per decade. So that's a standard deviation every 
century or so. I mean, it's just a huge effect. So hmm. um, may have slowed down, may have stopped, may have reversed. A little hard to tell in different countries. So, but in any case, whatever it is, it seems like some of it is real and important, at least real and important for the economic problems we have to solve in the future. Problems of abstraction, the problems of getting along with others. Um, I like to tell people, you know, IQ tests are about solving puzzles, uh, but one of the greatest puzzles of all is our fellow human beings. And so it's no surprise that intelligence tests predict social intelligence. Um, and uh, people say that you know, a lot of common, a lot of folks think it's intuitive that high IQ people are kind of out of touch and don't really get other people. Um, I mean, on average, there's just this strong ability, moderately strong, I don't want to say perfect, but moderately strong ability of people who do better on IQ tests to basically read the minds of others to figure out what other people are thinking and to respond accordingly. And that's valuable for all of us, I think. Yeah. I love, I love that question you posed of, and that's kind of what we're dancing around is where does this Flynn effect come from? Say that five times fast. Yeah. Um, and and that, and that is so interesting to think about. And I, and I wonder the examples you you said of Canada and Singapore, are we doing case studies at all of, of measuring this over a period of time to see what the impacts might be? I mean, I, ha I have to say I have given up on keeping track of Flynn effect stuff. It's just not like the results <laughs> just aren't enough to pretty, to persuade me, you know, then, and part of the problem is like in terms of breaking down what it is and where it's showing up more, where it's showing up less. Um, and part of the reason is you're like, you're looking at 10, 20 year periods. So then you're looking at a two to four point IQ difference on average, right? It's just too hard for anybody to say anything mm -hmm. convincing, persuasive about this. So some people are finding evidence that it's mostly coming from the folks in the bottom half of the IQ distribution. Some are finding it's in the top half, kind of depends on the country. Um, it just ha it just never got systematic enough for me to say anything where I'd say like, yes, I'm persuaded by what this is. But what I do know is that it's big enough. So it's, it's one of these, it, in, in, my, in macroeconomics and business cycle theory, we have the same problem, right? There's a lot of shocks hitting the economy and I don't know which shock is causing which thing exactly and they're, you're getting hit by so many at once. So in macro, we're used to sort of mushy data and just having to live with the generalization, live with the more abstract generalizations. And I think with the Flynn effect, um, what we should be saying is that whole thing is good and let's just get more of it and let's try to make sure that we don't fret too much over hmm. what what exactly is driving it, what ex where exactly it's showing up. Like the whole bundle's good, let's just grab more of that. So. Yeah. I mean, it may yeah. turn out that it's mostly people in the top half of the distribution might increase inequality in a world like that. I still think you should take it because you should say those folks are solving problems that all of us have. So one of the great things about the human mind is that when one person comes up with a great idea, it eventually gets shared with a lot of other people. This is Paul Romer's Nobel in a way. So that... So we so basically worrying about inequality or is it going to help this group more than that group should be we, we need to lower those questions in status and raise in status the question of can we have some folks solve problems that are likely to have spillovers that help all of us 10 or 20 years from now. Mm -hmm. And do you see a lot of this work trickling into policy and any kind of legislation to actively pursue I have to say I've been very pleased that the World Bank has drawn more attention to standardizing cognitive score tests, cognitive test scores around the world. So um, 
The uh, World Bank has what's known as, I, I, they've changed the name a couple times, like the Human Capital Index. And um, they have a human capital group that is trying to systematize all these uh, and make comparable math, science, reading tests around the world. And they really want to make it something we can measure the, with the same way we measure years of education. I mean, we know that years of education mean different things in different countries. Heck, they mean different things in different majors, right? Um, and uh, I'm, I'm glad to see the World Bank just taking a big step in that. They've, they, the World Bank has done a lot of the great things on in terms of saying, hey, we need to push for this or that um, healthcare policy in part because it, it probably raises test scores for young children. And that's like a, that's, that's the kind of battle I want to win. I don't need people to call mm -hmm. it IQ. I don't care. I, I have no skin in that game. Yeah. I care about whether people are using the measure that matters more. And we know that years of education is a much worse measure than IQ tests, than test scores, however measured. So Lowering the status of years of education, raising the status of any kind of standardized test score. Um, the World Bank has taken that on in a big way, so we should encourage more of that. Mm -hmm. Well, it's it's funny. You're, so this book, Hive Mind, it's all about how IQs are indicators of these things that some of us don't want them to be indicators of. We get very uncomfortable by being said, oh, this is your number and this is kind of your predictor. So then you follow that up with another book. Um, 10% less democracy, why you should trust elites a little more and mass a little less. This one's going to get you canceled. <laughs> well, it, it, the thing is, it didn't. Uh, they, that uh, uh, Western Europeans in particular, all the great newspapers, many of the great newspapers in Western Europe give it, give it a great coverage, um, enthusiastic yeah. coverage. And I was really happy with that. I, I got a, a, a good review in The Economist to sort of um, – a, a, even I guess you could say it's an even-handed review. They loved the first half of the book, and they said the second half of the book got a little too crazy. So, um, well, yeah, I mean, a good reviewer has to has to find something they don't like about a book, you know. But I mean, it, but it was I I think that that Economist review helped get it um, a lot of attention, and Europeans in particular, people who are fans of the European Union, have been worried about the rise of populism over the la uh, especially since 2015, right? And um, they're, they're comfortable with having some, some distance, not a lot of distance, but some distance between the voters and the government. And, uh, the, the, the institutions that Europeans have created, like the institutions Europeans have created in Brussels have done, uh, I, I have a chapter on this, the book that, you know, the EU was not a project that was, that had the best things going for it. You know, it was very cumbersome, very, you know, a bunch of countries sort of cooperating and sort of not cooperating. And yet it's done uh, quite a good job at central tasks. Um, it's a kludge, it's a, it's a messy framework, uh, but the European Central Bank has shown its ability to innovate and its ability to sort to do the best it can with a, when it's dealt a tough hand. And um, while still maintaining representative uh, democratic credibility with the voters. So when the voters of Europe change their opinions on an issue, there's a pretty good chance that Brussels will change its policy on that issue too. So. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe break down a bit. What are some of your core arguments there of why, why this, um, you know, a little bit less democracy? Well, I, you know, I learned about this partly when I was working in the Senate. I'm, I'm talking to you here from just a couple blocks from the Capitol. It's right behind me, the Capitol Hill. With the oh, people. okay. Yeah, it's right behind me. And um, I worked there as a Senate staff for a couple of times, 
And in the U.S. Senate, people have six-year terms. And one thing you notice is that senators act a lot differently in the last two years of their term when they're getting ready to approach the voters again. Mm -hmm. In the first four years, you know, in the old days, we would say, the first four years, they were acting like a statesman, right? Like this grand historical figure. And the last two years, they're basically, you know, going to country fairs and kissing babies and shaking hands all the time. And what... Um, that's a that's a sort of casual observation. But what statistical work has shown is that they vote differently in the first four years versus the last two. So one example of this was uh, Senator Hillary Clinton. In her first four years as senator from New York, she voted for every free trade bill. And for in the last two years as senator of New York, when she was facing reelection, she voted against every free trade bill. So and free trade is one issue that's pretty unpopular. And that's an extreme version of what happens on average in the Senate. Senators are a lot more reluctant to vote for free trade bills when they're the closer they get to the voters. Um, it's a reminder that basically being uh, being a little further from, from voters can put you a little closer to economic wisdom. And it's a real world test. Like, is being close to voters really good for policy? And sometimes it isn't. Um, I saw that's one place I saw it. Another important place I saw it was at, I studied monetary economics. That was my dissertation studying the Federal Reserve. And um, what statistical work by you know, Larry Summers of Harvard has shown is that uh, um, the more independent a central bank is, the further the central bank is from the voters, the lower your inflation rate is, and it doesn't seem to have any effect at all on your economic growth. So there's no kind of cruel trade-off. Like, oh, if we hand monetary policy to the bankers, it's gonna be bad for workers. We don't have any evidence for that. You, like, it sounds great on Twitter, but it's just not true. So keeping monetary policy further away from voters um, seems to be a free lunch. And you know, lower, lower average inflation, probably a lower risk of financial crises, and no bad effect on economic growth or job growth or the unemployment rate or anything. So uh, basically it's the idea that voters are often pushing for things that are kind of bad. And so keeping the, keeping the, the keys of the government car a little bit further away from them uh, seems to get you pretty high benefits and pretty low costs. So I just wanted, like, these were ideas that were sitting around in different fields of economics and political science. And I wrote a book that just pulled all of these different things together and said, hey, I think there's a pattern here um, that over the 20th century, we've kept continued to see times where putting the government, having, having the government, having voters be a check on the government has a huge payoff. Having the voters check in on the government and throw the rascals out if they really hate them. Um, seems to have pretty high benefits. Uh, but having voters micromanage the details of government and having really short terms uh, seems to have pretty high costs. So I think we could put the, the government a little bit further away from the voters in the rich countries and have high benefits, low costs. And economists like it when you, anything you can do where you can get high benefits, low costs, that's something you ought to do. Yeah. So it seems like your approach is looking at democracy as a production system uh -huh. whose output is governance. And so I just want to hear in your view, why is it important to assess democracy through this lens? Well, I think part of it is that, um, I mean, I'm happy to have people evaluate the benefits of democracy through, through non-economic outcomes. Um, but there, I think it's at least as the case is at least as strong. So suppose you think that, um, you know, I think having voters in charge of government is going to be more likely to get me a bunch of the, the human rights I care about. Well, I mean, if most of us look back over the last 50 years in the rich democracies, 
a lot of the human rights that we care about were first granted to us by the unelected judges. So it's unelected judges imposing their will on the people that seems to get us a lot of big benefits. So a lot of things that I personally like first came through the unelected judiciary, which is very undemocratic. And then eventually the court, eventually the voters catch on or the legislature catches on and changes some laws. So, um, you know, if you're on the left, um, you'll probably feel that way about uh, marriage equality. If you're on the right, you'll probably feel that way about gun rights in the U.S. And in other countries, there'll be different settings. There are different issues at stake. But uh, a lot of us look to courts, which are quite undemocratic, to, to grant us things that we think we deserve. And then later often we look back and say, yeah, that was a good decision, even if we disagreed with it at the time. So on, the, on those human rights-based issues, those quality of life issues that are tough to put into an equation, uh, I tend to think that um, elitism is, has a pretty good track record. Not perfect, but you know, I don't expect perfection. Um, the, the other comeback would be that some people just love participating in democracy itself, that it sort of makes us more human to be constantly involved in our government. And to those people, I say, please enjoy your New England town meeting, right? Like, go and do that, right? There's, there's actually a push for participatory democracy. There's some reform movements in political science and political philosophy journals where people are saying, you know, we could have a lot of meetings and bring people together to talk and they'd feel more engaged in their governance. And I mean, I just don't think most people want to go to that many meetings, uh, I don't think people want to think about their government that much. I don't think they, they they want to outsource most governance the way we outsource smartphone production. Like I don't need to go to Samsung meetings to you know, uh, you know to do some kind of Skype call with Samsung CEOs to uh, help consult on the next iteration of my software. I just want to leave that to the experts. And if I don't like the product, then I can just switch products. So I think that. Nobody wants to be voting all the time on their smartphones for this or that government decision. Um, so I think that the, I, there are few real benefits for most people to getting deeply involved in our community governance decisions. And so I, I, I think if, if I'm wrong about that, if I'm misreading what people really want, then, then my book is irrelevant. But I think most of us want like a government that presents us good things, gives us a good quality of life, safety, human dignity, and for most of the things that most of us want, a little more elitism would have uh, was the way to go. Yeah, I, you know, I love these conversations, and I can definitely feel myself being like, "Ooh, I don't, I don't like the thought of that." Like, there's this gut reaction. Um, but I very much understand the core problem that it feels like you're isolating is this short-termism by politicians. Yeah, and. So what are what are perhaps other ways to get rid of short termism without less democracy or or is there Well I mean uh one way one way to get to get something that would feel like just the same amount of democracy but um at a pretty low cost I think would be more staggered terms so, for instance, the, in the U.S. Senate, uh, we all have these six-year terms, and we all know that a third of the senators are up every two years, and it's a different group up every two years. Uh, to me, I, 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 most people think that the – many people who think about it, at least, think that the House of Representatives with two-year terms, those terms are too short. So, yeah. you know, I'd be happy to – I think many of us would be happy to extend those terms, let's say, to six years, 
and do it just the way they do in the Senate, where a third of them are up all the time. So there would be constantly be a national debate over policy every two years, just like there is now. Um, but at the same time, once the politicians are in office, they could actually uh, act like statespeople for the first four years and then act like pandering politicians the last two. So getting that balance right between the, the pandering versus the statesperson element of the job is is important. And I, you know, anybody who works in the House or, or covers the House, pays attention to the House, they notice like, well, these folks are just on a treadmill all the time. Campaign, 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 always keep an eye on the voters. Now, the American founders thought that was great. They were really worried about having the government get out of control. Um, but um, the problem is that the alternative to them being out of control is having them be under the control of the actual voters. So, right, that's the economic way of think, thinking, to compare something to another alternative. You don't compare it to utopia. So I can have an out-of-control government with these if I give the House six-year terms, or I can have them obsessively focused on what the voters want. Obsessively mm -hmm. focused on what the voters want isn't so hot. Yeah. And I think staggered terms... Staggered terms are a way to get um, uh, a lot of participation, a lot of cultural attention to how the government's being run um, while still uh, making only course corrections to the ship of state every year or two. And where where do you see the U.S. on this spectrum? Is it closer to the mark than perhaps not, or is it further away than you think it should be? Because, I mean, the title of the book is 10% less. It's not, that's not radical 10%. If someone says 10% more, 10% less, it's, it's, it's a very minor course correction. And so do you still feel like that's where the U.S. kind of is, is just like make some minor changes, though of course it'd be very dramatic, changing terms for the House is a dramatic move, though in the grand scheme of things, it's it's somewhat minor in the great picture of democracy. And so I guess where on that spectrum do you see the U.S. currently? No, I, I do think that basically, I mean, if I I'm, if I leave aside the state governments, which are a, a whole nother kettle of fish, um, if you think about the federal government, it really would be, you know, I take 10 percent and then, you know, uh, two generations from now, some other scholar can look back and say whether we should try another 10 percent. Um, and I would say the 10% would include like that, making that, giving the house six year terms, um, which is something sort of everybody wants, but nobody is, nobody really wants to push it over the edge. Nobody has a strong incentive to make that change. I don't think too many people object to it. Um, so six year terms in the house and make a lot more of the federal government's um, independent agencies truly independent. So in the federal reserve, people have 14 year terms in the federal judiciary, people have lifetime terms. You know, uh, that, that, that kind of range is what we should be thinking about. People might, you know, a lot of countries mm -hmm. have gone with mandatory retirement at 80 or mandatory retirement at 70 maybe. But the idea of very long terms has seems to have big payoffs. Um, so you don't feel beholden to the person who appointed you. Uh, I Taking the Securities and Exchange Commission, the Federal Trade Commission, the Federal Communications Commission, giving them long terms and an independent budget like the Fed does, that seems that seems like good steps in the right direction. Currently, they're sort of independent, but they're always really in control by the party in power of the White House and party in control of the White House. So just those by itself would be a, a very happy place for me to go. Um, I also think we should uh, I also think we should formalize 
U.S. the U.S. government's discussions with its bondholders, um, because bondholders, people with 10-year, 30-year investments in the U.S., have that kind of long time horizon that voters rarely have. So I don't, we don't have to go much further than that, but I'd say like some kind of system where there's a council of treasury bondholders that meets together with say the treasury um, and the head of the um, house and Senate financial services committees, you know, every, every year or two, just to sort of give their opinions on the long-term financial status of the U.S. Um, because if we ever get in a real financial crisis, if we ever get in a real debt crisis in the U.S., those treasury bondholders are going to be writing the terms of the reform. So we might as well listen to them before the, that day happens. Um, usually they have good advice. They, usually they give advice that's going to make the country richer in the long run. So paying attention to patient money, listening to the voice of patient money is a good idea. And I think that more, more of the rich democracy should be paying attention to the people who've made 10-year, 20-year, 30-year investments in their country. Mm-hmm. And I guess... That makes me think, don't we kind of have that already through market forces in that bondholders, they set the interest rate that the U.S. pays on its debt? And and so in a way, they have tried to say like, hey, maybe slow down some of the deficit spending because uh, rates, it looks like they do want to climb, but the Fed has been kind of overstepping that very powerful market force and they've been buying those bonds to suppress rates and it's almost like yes almost like suppressing this meeting you're talking about the fed comes like yeah guys get out of here we don't we don't want to hear what you got to say um because because at least that's the way that i see it that we kind of almost do have that meeting but it's a bit sabotage in a way so then we, this is the sort of 10% less democracy question, right? They're already giving us some voice. Um, the market signals, the interest rates that we see on long-term government debt are already a voice. But should we listen to more of it or less of it? So this is the economist question. Should I dial a little to the left or a little to the right? And um, I think we should dial a little more to the right. I think we should go up a little bit more. Um, they're giving us good advice. They're trying to tell us something. And if somebody's giving you – if your doctor's giving you like – really good advice and you're saying well i'm getting i'm getting the advice in these error-ridden emails that i hear every two years um so i guess that's enough you should say no 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 the doctor's giving you really good advice so you should try to get a more accurate version of that signal you should probably meet with your doctor rather than just getting typo-ridden emails every two years so <laughs> formalize the meeting if they're giving you good advice listen to more of it don't just say hey you gave me some advice um, that's all I need is some advice. Ask yourself, am I getting mm-hmm. the optimal amount of advice? And my guess is when it comes to uh, the voice of the treasury bondholders, we're not getting the optimal level of advice. We're getting too little. We're getting these noisy signals just from market prices. You could actually just go talk to them, right? Like it's not hard to set up a meeting. So, Yeah, it's it's really interesting to think about. And when... You know, when you phrase it like, well, here's the problem, short-termism, if we just did a simple thing like change the terms in the house and we can reassess this in a decade or so and come back to it, that sounds so practical and realistic. But when I think about it through the context of, you know, less democracy listens to elites more, I think about the U.S. as having this very strong national identity rooted in 
uh, independence, democracy, freedom. Yeah, Tocqueville, and, right? Yeah, Tocqueville, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And trying to change that identity sounds pretty much impossible, um, for better or worse. Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, that's why I didn't write the book as a book for America, right? I wrote it for all the rich democracies. So I think, I mean, I'm glad, like I said, I'm glad Western Europeans paid, paid a ton of attention. Uh, it's been translated into Korean. I've got a copy of the Korean translation right over there. Oh, so cool. I'm glad that like there's uh, a market for this all around the world because there are a lot of countries this should apply mm-hmm. to. And, you know, your doctor should tell you to uh, stop mo- stop smoking and eat less and get in shape, even if you're going to ignore the advice, right? The doctor should give the same advice to everyone. Um, and then some people listen to it and some people don't. And I don't blame the doctor if the patient doesn't take the advice. So I think this is pretty reasonable advice for uh, the rich democracies. That, and the reason I give people a menu of options is because I know that like some will be easier for some countries than others, right? And so I'm an economist. You should just go up the marginal cost curve. Buy the cheap one first, buy the next cheapest one second, buy the, and, and ignore the expensive stuff. So, Yeah. Great. Well, Garrett, this has been a really fun conversation. Um, I, I really feel like I've um, thought about some stuff in, in angles that I quite haven't before. So, you know, a big thank you to that. And if folks want to find these books, yeah. And if folks want to find these books or more of your work, where, where could they find that? Super easy on Amazon. Um, Amazon's taken great care of me for the last few years. And um, I've got some links on my homepage, which is uh, jonesgarrett.com. And, oh, excuse me, it's uh, not that. It's GarrettJones.com. I got one R and two T's. I managed to get it the right way. So uh, Garrett Jones, G-A-R-E-T-T. If you uh, just spell my name with one R, you'll find me. If you put in two R's, you'll find the guy who used to play for the Yankees. (laughs) Awesome. Well, yeah, he probably hasn't written those books either, so. Yeah. But he's not Well, you have a good rest. So God bless him, so. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Garrett. Great. Thanks for having me. Take care. Thank you for watching to the very end. If you like our content, make sure to like, subscribe, rate, and review. It is the best way to help us reach the most people possible. And that way we can keep producing content every week. Make sure to drop a comment below of who you'd like us to interview next. And we look forward to seeing you next week. 